Alrighty. Well, hello, everyone. It's good to be with you all tonight, especially getting to kick off a new sermon series. But before we begin, I got to call something out. Now, we're getting ready to start a series called Distracted. But I know that as we begin, before we even start, there are a lot of you right now who are already distracted. Okay? Maybe it's something that's been going on in the service already so far. It could be one of the videos we watched here. Maybe something in the worship time. Or you could be one of those who brings your own distractions wherever you go. You know, right now you're thinking about what you might be eating after you leave here. Or you might be thinking about your task list for next week. And I know that there's a percentage of you who are there right now who are thinking, I can text and drive. I could totally do that test. In fact, we got a decent-sized church parking lot out here right now. I bet you I could do that right after the service. And there are people right now who, before we've even started, are already distracted in some way or another. Truth is, we're a distracted society. We are a distracted culture. And so I'm going to make, I'm going to make an agreement with you, okay? A deal. Listen carefully for about the next 30 minutes. 30 minutes. That's, that's like the length of one Duck Dynasty episode, all right? So I know you can do it. Hone in just for a little bit. And not just for that, but for the next five weekends, we're going to be going through a series called Distracted. Because I believe that God has some things for us to learn and to hear about. And if you will tune in, my promise to you is that I'm going to be praying over everything, pining over everything that's shared, so that I can help you with the very distractions that you may be warring at right now in your own heart and in your mind as I'm talking. Okay? So let's get started and distracted, and we're going to have to make sure we're all on the same page before we get going. So let's begin by doing this. Distracted. In order to get it going, we have to start with the same definition of what I'm talking about when I say a distraction. So to simplify, a distraction is an interruption. A distraction is anything that causes your attention to shift from what you should be focusing on. I'll say that again. A distraction is anything that steals your focus from what you should be focusing on. That's what a distraction is, and we're going to start with that. That's going to be our operating definition over the course of these next five weeks. But I'm going to need, a, I'm going to need some little help here because we're going to do a quick show of hands, a little survey to see what kind of person you are in regards to distractions, okay? So there are really only two people when it comes to the way we deal with distractions. There are those who are easily distracted and those who are not so easily distracted. Let's just keep it simple like that, all right? And so here's what I want to do. I want to do a quick show of hands, and this isn't for me. I, I don't need to see your hands for me. I want for everybody around you to go ahead and see who, who you think you are, easily distracted or not so easily distracted. 95th, please play along. Everybody around you needs to see this too. So go ahead right now. And for those of you who are easily distracted, hands in the air, easily distracted, keep them up. Everybody look around. These are the people who are self, uh, self-identifying as easily distracted. If Brett Lilly is in the room at 95th, I pr- his, somebody should get his hand up. I wouldn't be surprised if it's down because he's probably distracted right now. Get him to put his hand in the air. Okay, that's the easily distracted. Hand back down. Okay, this is the focused people. Those who say, you know, I'm not so easily distracted. I can focus when I need to. Who are the focused people? Hands in the air. All right, a decent number of people say they're focused. And let me help you out. Go ahead, you can put your hands back down. Those who put their hands up for focus, I don't think that's prideful. I don't think that's wrong. Uh, Maybe God's blessed you with the ability to be able to be focused innately. Maybe you've worked really hard at it. I don't know. But you can be a focused person. That's great. We'll pick on you guys later. But the thing for distracted people is that we have a hard time at life. Anybody notice my hand didn't go up when I said said focused people? My hand went right in the air when I said distracted people because, man, I wish 
that I could tell you all, I'm just like a warrior at life, you know, and I can just hone in on anything and nothing distracts me. That is totally not true. I, I can, I mean, things take my attention so quickly. It takes so long for me to get things done. I, I find this to be the case. And if that was you who raised your hand in that first group, then you might understand what I'm talking about. We're the kind of people who, when we go online to do something very simple, like pay a bill, all right, get on your computer, you open up, click on the little icon for the internet, and it pops open, and then all you have to do, all you've got to do is get that little mouse arrow from the middle-ish of the screen up to the upper right-hand corner where you have that tab saved for online banking. It's like maybe eight inches. That's all you've got to go. And, and to get that arrow from there to there without getting distracted is nearly impossible because just as you're getting ready to click on your banking, you go, ooh, places to visit when you're in Norway. Click, 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 click. And you go to this place. I'm never going to Norway. I have no desire to go to Norway. I have no idea if I'll ever end up there. But I might need to know about Norway. So I find out about the places to visit there. It's a great article. looks really good. But at the bottom of that article, there's another one. Eddie Murphy movie, Loses Money at the Box Office. What? Click, 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 click. I go in to find out about that, and I keep going. Have you ever got caught in these chains before? Going deeper and deeper down the rabbit hole, over and over. And then finally, the, the process that was supposed to take you like five minutes, maybe even one, to pay a bill. I mean, it takes you forever to finally get that done. I mean, 25 minutes, an hour later, you realize you still haven't gotten that one thing done. Man, praise the Lord for the focused people because the bills would never get paid without people like you around. We have a hard time oftentimes when it comes to being focused. It's so easy for us to lose focus and to get distracted. Now, I've found that some focused people use uh, little instruments, use tools to help them with their distractions. And so they may actually be a distracted person, but they've learned how to deal with it. So when they have to do something that's really difficult, like maybe they have to hone in and think really carefully about one, one, one subject for a long time, they'll get out of the house. They'll leave the office to go to a coffee shop. Anybody do this? Try to go to a coffee shop to try to get less distracted? Okay, if you're a distracted person... You just traded the distractions of home for the distractions of the coffee shop, and that's just like one great big people-watching session. Because you're watching every person come in, what they're getting for the coffee, and why does she say that to him, and oh, does he know her, and all this is going on, and it is so distracting. And if you're anything like me, you understand what I'm talking about. And I found that some places are worse than other places when it comes to being distracted. Ikea. Anybody ever been to Ikea before? Okay, most of the people who are really easily distracted are still at Ikea. Because that's like an ADD paradise, an ADD prison. Because you go in that place, and it's just, I, I mean, I, I've done this before, going in real quick. Okay, desk lamp, desk lamp, desk lamp. Ooh, candles. A hundred for 99 cents. Of course I need these. And you just wander the place. That's why they put the restaurant in there. Because people get stuck, and they need food to survive. It's a prison without bars. They don't need them. They know that you'll be stuck just wandering that labyrinth forever. Distracted people see things, and they go quickly, and they move, and their mind jumps from one thing to the next to the next. You know, my little daughter is a perfect example of watching distraction at its finest. Now, not only is she at the age, she's two and a half, little Bethany, not only can she really get distracted just because of her age, but she has one thing that distracts her more than any other things, and that's other kids. Maybe it's because she was, uh, she was an only child for so long. We just had a, our little baby boy was born to us about a month ago. And so now she's finally got another one in the house to compete with. But for a while, it was just her. So when we go to the park, all she wants to do is to see these other little kids. And so she'll do this where she'll be playing in the, in the park and she'll be kind of doing her little thing. And we'll call her to come over to where we are so we can go home, hanging out by the stroller. Hey, Bethany, let's go. And she'll come walking towards us and she'll see, she'll see out of the side of her eye. She'll see some other little kids. And she'll do this thing where she'll start walking, and all of a sudden, 
And she does what I would call the mini step. Where they're still obeying you, kind of, because they're still going, but that little, you know, you know what I'm talking about, parents? You've seen that mini step where they'll, they'll walk real slow like this, their feet are barely moving. And the kids will do this thing because they know that they're so distracted by something. And I wish that that was only little kids. I wish that only little kids got distracted. But then I walk into Costco, and I give them my little card, and then that plasma paradise on the wall right there, and I start doing the mini step myself, and I realize this is not just a little kid issue, and it's not just one little theme. It's not just one little subject that tends to steal our attention. We are the kinds of people in a culture where we have our attention stolen so quickly and so easily. And aren't there an infinite number of distractions out there for us? Isn't it so easy to be distracted? Regardless if you were in the one camp who says, I'm easily distracted, or you're in the other one who says, ah, I can focus. Regardless, you got to admit that you have to deal with distractions. Every person is going to have to deal with distractions in one way or another in their life. It's unavoidable. How are you going to deal with them? Now, we could talk about practical distractions all day long and have some fun with it, but the truth is, I don't really want to spend some time talking about practical distractions. I really want to kind of flip the coin and look at something much deeper, spiritual distractions. The things that distract us in our spiritual lives. So if you have your Bibles with you today, go ahead and open up to John chapter 2. And I'm going to be using one of these red Bibles from the seat backs in front of you. So go ahead and pull one out if you want. I I like using this one so that we can be literally on the same page. Page 813, for those of you who are going to be using uh, one of these Bibles, the little red ones, we'll be Bible buddies today using the same one. And uh, I want to go ahead and read through a passage here that I think will be profound for us in understanding distractions and a distraction-free life. So let's go ahead and start. I'm going to read this out loud to you. John chapter 2, verses 13 through 17. It was time for the annual Passover celebration, and Jesus went to Jerusalem. In the temple area, he saw merchants selling cattle, sheep, and doves for sacrifices, and he saw money changers behind their counters. Jesus made a whip from some ropes and chased them all out of the temple. He drove out the sheep and oxen, scattered the money changers' coins over the floor, and turned over their tables. Then, going over to the people who sold doves, he told them, Get these things out of here! Don't you turn my father's house into a marketplace! I think he yelled. Then his disciples remembered this prophecy from the scriptures. Passion for God's house burns within me. Now, I love this passage, okay? And and here's why I love this passage. I think that we can learn a huge lesson here. I think really two main lessons. We can learn something about Jesus, and we can learn something about the church from this very specific passage so, so let's go ahead and start with Jesus, which is always a good place to start. This passage teaches us something about Jesus. It's going to do something that helps us see a different Jesus than what the world likes to promote. Before I get there, I've got to kind of step out and say, have you noticed that the world talks about Jesus too? Not the church, but that the world talks about Jesus. Those who don't say they follow Jesus still will talk about him. And when you hear about what they say about this Jesus, you realize that's a lot different Jesus than the one that I follow. It's not the same because the world likes to take Jesus and likes to shave off all the rough edges, like to rip out the parts of the Bible they don't like about the things that he say. He says, and try to turn Jesus into this flip-flop-wearing, tree-hugging, everybody-love hippie who goes through his life just purporting love being the only thing that we need, kind of like a Beatles song, all you need is love. And that's the Jesus that we see in the world. And the truth is, he's very different than the Jesus that we see in the Bible. 
You see, because the Jesus we see in the Bible is significantly more loving than the Jesus the world says is real. Than the Jesus the world says who loves so much that he would never, ever offend. And loves so much that he would never, ever do anything that might hurt somebody's feelings. You see, the real Jesus loves people enough that he cares about them, even if it means that their feelings will be hurt. Man, Jesus was not afraid to offend. In fact, Jesus was not afraid to offend the hard-hearted in order to help the soft-hearted. He was willing to do that over and over. And so we see in this passage, it kind of flies in the face of this idea, the nice guy Jesus that the world wants us to say is who he was. We know that he was so much more than that. And because Jesus was perfect as God and perfect in love, we know that no matter what he did, it was the most loving thing he could have ever done. Which means that in this moment, as Jesus is flipping tables, as he is making a whip out of a rope, and as he is driving people out of God's temple, that is the most loving thing he could have done most loving thing. And here's why. Because in that moment, Jesus gives us a glimpse into God's overwhelming, righteous, fiery passion for the undistracted worship of his people. Did you catch that? God so loves the undistracted worship of his people that he will do what it takes to eliminate those distractions so that we can worship him wholeheartedly with everything that we have. And Jesus gives us a glimpse, just a glimpse of that righteous anger that can be seen in God when something distracts and obstructs our wholehearted worship before him. So we can learn something about Jesus from this passage. Additionally, we can learn something about the church. Now I'm willing to bet that there's a handful of you who, when you read through this passage, whether you've done it in the past or you're kind of thinking about this for the first time right now, what might go through your mind is something like this. Man, that Jesus seems pretty angry. Never seen him so violent or aggressive in the Bible. It seems like the most we see him outside of maybe Revelation, but walking on this earth here, that's, that's an intense moment, and he's angry. And what's making him so angry? That he sees things being bought and sold in the temple. But wait a minute. When I walked into the church building today, I mean, I saw people buying coffee over here. And I saw a table over here with books being sold. And I saw a table here with hot dogs being sold for the missions trip for youth and for, for uh, kids' camp tickets and, and for tickets to different concerts and events that we host here. And wait a second, if Jesus were to walk into the church today, would he flip all the tables the same way that he did back in that time when we see him in John chapter 2 in the temple? And here's my answer to that. That line of thinking comes from a wrong presumption. We begin with an assumption that is not what the Bible teaches. And this is what our assumption is in those moments with that line of thinking. Our assumption is that the church building is the modern equivalent of the Old Testament temple. But you see, the Bible tells us something very different. Ephesians chapter, chapter 2 verse 20 tells us that we are the very house of God. That the apostles are the foundation and Christ is the cornerstone himself. 2 Corinthians six sixteen says that we are the temple. Folks, the church building is not the modern equivalent of the Old Testament temple. You are. You are. If Christ were returned today and to do the same thing he had done in John chapter 2, it would not take place in a church foyer. It would take place in your heart. And so then here's the question. If Jesus were to walk through the courts of your heart, would he find any tables that need flipping? Would he find any money changers that he would need to drive out? Are there any distractions that are in your heart, in the, the temple court, your heart, 
that Jesus would have to go after. And that makes a whole different thinking. Because God wants so much for the undistracted, uncluttered, wholehearted worship of his people. And Jesus shows us that in this moment in John chapter 2, which I find is one of the most helpful passages in understanding the way that God looks at the church and the way that God looks at the temple. I want for you to open up your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 12, verses 1 through 3. And if you don't, if you don't want to go there quickly, I, I've got it tabbed. I'll read it out loud for you. But the question becomes, okay, hold on. So we're supposed to have a distraction-free life. We're supposed to not have things there that keep us from worshiping God. And earlier, you may recall that I gave you a practical definition for distractions, right? Anything that steals our focus from what we should be focusing on. Well, then a spiritual distraction is anything that steals our focus from God. A spiritual distraction is anything that steals our focus from God. If it, is, if it is a table in our temple courts, then it is a distraction, and God doesn't want it there because it's keeping us from giving him wholehearted, complete worship. Luckily, the Bible gives us more clues as to how we can live an undistracted life, how we can get those, those tables out so we don't have to displease the Lord when he comes to, to flip those tables, but we can deal with them. And so Hebrews chapter 12, verses 1 through 3 will give us a clue. Therefore, since we are surrounded by such a huge crowd of witnesses to the life of faith, as other believers, let us strip off every weight that slows us down, especially the sin that so easily hinders our progress. And let us run with endurance the race that God has set before us. So we know we're supposed to run the race. We're supposed to run it with endurance. Got it. We're not supposed to have those distractions. But how? The next verse will give us a clue. How do we do this? Verse 2. We do this by keeping our eyes on Jesus, on whom our faith depends from start to finish. He was willing to die a shameful death on the cross because of the joy he knew would be his afterward. Now he is seated in the place of highest honor beside God's throne in heaven. Think about all he endured when sinful people did such terrible things to him so that you don't become weary and give up. This is what it's saying you want an example of this? You want some help in knowing how you can stop being so distracted? Focus on Jesus. Not only because that's what we're supposed to be fixed upon, but also because he is the perfect example of how to live an undistracted life. He is our undistracted Savior. Are you not glad that he didn't get waylaid when he was on his way to the cross? Something else didn't take some high importance and, and he went to go do that instead? Aren't you glad that when he saw the cross and he knew his mission, he knew his purpose, he went straight towards it and he didn't pause, he didn't stop, he didn't hold back, but he kept right on towards it. Aren't you glad? Because he did that, now we can have eternal life with him. See, Jesus was perfectly undistracted. And he is our picture of how we should be, a model for us as to how we should live the undistracted life. Now, Jesus did not just go through the normal, ordinary distractions that you and I will face every day. While he did that, and he did that perfectly, he even faced supernatural distractions. Jesus, you may recall back in the Gospels, several of the Gospels record the time that he was tested in the wilderness. Matthew chapter 4 is one of the places that specifically talks about Jesus going out into the wilderness, led by the Holy Spirit to be tempted by Satan. And in the wilderness, as he's being tempted by Satan in a supernatural capacity... Satan continues to poke at things of Jesus. And here we have this standoff, this epic standoff. The prince of darkness and the prince of peace, head to head. And what happens here is that Satan tries to use all kinds of things that you and I struggle with all the time to tempt Jesus. And he says, hey, you, look, you don't look too good, Jesus. You look hungry. You should probably have some food because Jesus had been fasting for 40 days. 
He said, hey, you know, you know, you don't have to go through all this. People will like you if you just do what I tell you to do. And you know what? If you want influence and power, I can take care of all that. You don't need to do anything. Don't worry about the cross. I'll take care of this for you. And he tried to distract Jesus, but Jesus refused to be distracted. And in refusing to be distracted, Jesus showed that he was more powerful than Satan. He was more powerful than those distractions, and he can be the same for you. Now, Satan then, when he realized that he had no way that he could stand toe-to-toe with Jesus, reverted his attention off of Jesus and onto us, from Christ to the Christians. And here's now where, where Satan says, I can't deal with the strong guy. Let me go for the weak ones. And that's where he attacks relentlessly. A book that I've been reading through uh, for this series, rereading, I, I love this book, it's one of my favorite books, uh, is, is a huge help when it comes to understanding how it is that the enemy tries to attack us, what it is that he actually tries to do. Now, if you, if you read the Bible regularly, then let me add another one to the list, okay? If you don't read the Bible regularly, get into that. Trust me, it's way better. But if you do read it regularly, I, I would highly recommend C.S. Lewis's The Screwtape Letters. The Screwtape Letters. This has been one of the most profound books for me in my Christian walk. And here's why. It's written in 1942 by, by an incredible author, C.S. Lewis. He's the guy who did the Chronicles of Narnia. Uh, he's had lots of great successes in, in Christian literature. Mere Christianity is another excellent one. And, and here's what he does. What he does is writes in a very unique literary style. His style is that of intercepted enemy correspondence. In other words, what he does is he, through fiction work, he takes a bunch of letters... And he compiles them together as letters written from one demon to a subordinate demon instructing him on how to best tempt a human to keep him out of heaven. And it's really intense. And the reason that I feel it's so profound is because it it takes this whole idea of the enemy, the devil, wanting for us to be unhappy and depressed and miserable and confused. And he takes all of those things and it turns them on their head because the enemy's greatest hope is not for you and I to be depressed Christians. The enemy's greatest hope is not for you and I to be sad or downtrodden or just all the time have issues. His greatest hope is for you and I to be distracted. That if he can take our focus off of Christ even for just a little bit, and he wins in a profound way. You see, I think that the enemy knows something about us that we don't know or that if we do know, we, we neglect. Whether we choose to neglect or whether, whether we don't do it openly realizing we do, we neglect it nonetheless because the enemy knows that distractions are devastating for the Christian life. Distractions are devastating for the Christian life. I know as I say that, some of you are thinking, okay, that's a little bit strong. Um, we get distracted. Okay, I should put the cell phone down in the car. Um, I don't spend as much time in the Word because things you know, take my mind away. All right, we should, we should deal with those things. But it's not really that big of a deal. And I would disagree with you. I think distractions are not just devastating. They are, they are debilitating, crippling, and paralyzing for a Christian. You may have running through your mind a different analogy, maybe one from Hebrews chapter 12, 1 and 2, which I just read for you a little bit ago, which uses the example of running a race. Christians running a race, right? And and we're supposed to run it with endurance. That's how we're supposed to run. And so you may be thinking, well, if if I'm running a race and then the distractions come in, distractions are kind of like the obstacles 
the obstacles that keep me from, from running uh, at first place. Maybe distractions are those things that just slow me down just a little bit and take me from first place, knock me back down to second place. Maybe back down to third place. But let me explain. It doesn't just take you out from first to second. It takes you all the way out of the race. We made light of that little video at the very beginning of the texting and driving, right? But uh, have you ever seen someone try to text and drive while, you, while they're going? It's, it's dangerous, and it is crazy. And all it takes is one time holding the wheel and texting that phone there and say, make sure there's pepperoni on my pizza, and then you go to the other lane, boom. Is that just a setback? Is that just a little setback in life? Does that take you from first, maybe down to second place? It's devastating. It's devastating. You see, the enemy wants for us to take our focus off of God. He wants for us to have cluttered worship. He wants for us not to just go through our lives and, and, and show up to church and, and allow all the rest of the things to move on out and in our time with God to be able to focus on him. He just wants for us to be distracted, even if that means making us earthly happy, right? Even if that means making us wealthy. Even if that means making it look as though we're being blessed in lots of different ways of our life. Distraction is such an overwhelmingly powerful weapon. Throughout history, throughout history, different nations have used it against one another as they're trying to defeat each other in battle. They've used just distraction tactics. Have you, have you heard of these types of things? Where an attack is trying to come here, and so they'll create a distraction over in another area, and it will be a diversion, and everybody will look to the other side and not realize the enemy's coming from, from this direction. It happens over and over in history. It happens in our lives all the time, and if we shift our focus just a little bit to the wrong thing, what happens is that the distraction completely opens up our life to defeat. That's why distractions are devastating to the Christian life. And this is the point that I want to drive home more than anything this weekend. We walk through our lives, and we think if there's just a little thing that's not right in place, then it'll work itself out. It's not really that big of a deal. Let me tell you, it may be a very big deal. And until we all agree to decide, I'm not going to let little distractions just be a little thing for me. I'm going to let the things that I even think are little distractions come front and center to deal with them, to get them out so that I remove them. I don't want Christ to have to walk into my, my life and flip tables. I want to do that myself. I want to clear them myself. I want, I want through the power of God to identify those things, help me with it, but I don't want to have to be in that situation. Worship God with an uncluttered, undistracted life. This is actually my greatest concern for the church. When it comes to distractions, my greatest concern is not the distractions, but it's ironically actually the focus. I'm going to explain what I mean by that. Um, I think it's very easy for us to be distracted by the obvious, overt things, right? The, the ones that you'd expect, the, the sins. Hebrews chapter 12, 1, it even said, cast off those sins that hinder you, that slow you down in the race. So as long as you can do that, you'll be all right. And, and we as, as, those as Christians can look at this and say, okay, well, then I just have got to make sure that I don't sin. Focus on not sinning and just do all the things I'm supposed to do. As long as I, I, I kind of kill all those things out of my life, get them gone, then I'll be, I'll be all right. Just get rid of the sin. But, but what happens? The focus then becomes on removing sin, not on our creator. Not on the one who heals us from our sin. 
And so this is the thing that really concerns me, not the sin. And I'm not saying sin isn't a big deal. It's a huge deal. Listen to me carefully. It's a huge deal. We need to constantly be about repentance, going back to God, repenting of our sin, turning from it, going to him over and over. We need to do this all of our lives. We need to do this. Paul would say, listen, I do things I don't even want to do, and I do them even though I'm not supposed to, and it drives me nuts, and I have to keep coming back. We're going to do the same thing. Sin's a big deal, but it's not my biggest concern for you when it comes to distractions. My biggest concern for you is what you're focusing on. A little earlier, we, we asked, who are those who are easily distracted and who are those who are not so easily distracted? Well, for those of you who are not so easily distracted, I, I'm actually, I think that there's more potential for damage for you. Because you might not be you know, distracted by the little buzz things that fly around. You may be completely focusing on the wrong thing. And that's the big concern. Because those who are good at focusing are good at focusing on the wrong thing. Now, you may be sitting there thinking like, okay, well, what's, what's, what's the big bad stuff? Like, what's the big bad thing I'm not supposed to be focusing on? What's the distraction here? Like, like, help me out with this. Here's the distraction. Usually, the ones that Christians don't know about, the covert, hidden distractions, usually, they're really good things. They're usually really good things. Let's use prayer life for an example. Let's say that in your life, you're praying something very specifically Let's say that maybe you lost a job or a friend of yours has lost a job and so you're praying that God would find a way to give, give you a job, that you'd be praying for that. Maybe, maybe it's just a financial woe. Maybe you've gotten yourself into debt, maybe not even through sin, you're, just, you're in debt, it's just a, a struggle. You're praying that God will help you with that. Maybe it's even more selfless than that. Maybe you're praying for the salvation of a loved one. But here's what happens sometimes to Christians and the enemy is so deceitful that he'll take our focus on praying to God and he'll twist it just a little bit, just a little bit until we realize that over the weeks and over the months and maybe even years of praying something that all the prayer time becomes about the request, not the one to whom we're bringing our requests. You tracking? In other words, we can focus on what it is I'm praying about rather than focusing on God. So when I'm going to God and I'm praying, God, please help me with this situation. Please help, help my friend to get a job. He needs the job. Help him get the job. Help him get the job. We may turn that into a contingent offer to God. That God, if you take care of this, then I'll have a relationship with you. God, if you do this, then I will love you. Oh, if you show me that you're powerful in this way by providing, then I will be there for you. And what we've done is we've thrown a condition in which makes that distraction turn into something even more devastating than it ever could have been. Because now our distraction has turned into a full-blown idol. See, the difference between a distraction... An idol is actually very, very slim. A distraction is something that steals our focus from God. An idol is something that steals our affection from God. My concern is that the church would get to a point where we look at those things, where we focus on something other than God. This is when we begin singing songs about God rather than singing them to God. This is when we begin, begin reading the Bible to learn things about God rather than reading the Bible to know God. This is when we begin witnessing and sharing our faith instead of sharing the gospel. Do you see? Do you see how, how small, how incremental that, that the difference is there? But it can mean the whole world of difference because the things that we're focusing on, they might be the distraction. That's my concern for the church. We have to watch out for that. Have you ever met somebody who, who seems like, man, they're just never distracted. Somehow they walk through life and they can eliminate all of it. They know just what they're doing. You know, about a month ago, 
I got a call from the family member of a dear friend of mine saying that she was in the hospital. So I, I left work uh, right away, headed on over to Edward Hospital, and uh, as I walked in looking, looking for my friend, her name was Michelle. She's been going to this church for about three years. And as I walked down, down the aisles looking for the different numbers on the room, you know, try to find her room number, um, I, I, I walked right past the room. Like I was looking at it, I was like, oh, that's not Michelle, that's not Michelle, that's not Michelle, that's not her. And then I realized I passed her room. I didn't even recognize her. I didn't even recognize her because of what the ravages of cancer can do to a person. And so she was sitting there in the bed. I walked in, family members, some friends were there and, and tra- telling me what was going on. She had just found out she has one month to live. One month. And she sat there with peace. Peace, like, like somebody who just found out that, that, you know, that all of their concerns about health were gone. They were going to be just fine. And the nurses were like, man, this, do you understand, Michelle? You have, you have a month. And she's like, yes, I understand. And she had a smile on her face. And she had peace about her. And I'll, I'll tell you why. Michelle's a woman of God. She is, she is a woman who seeks after God's own heart. And she has proven it in her life. Because it was years before this time that she found out that she had cancer. And when she realized it, she decided to let go of her job, let go of her possessions. She lived on the East Coast. And she was going to move back to Chicago to be a missionary here for the family that she has here. So that she could share her faith every time she met with them. And that's how she lived her life. She came and she was a missionary. An incredible woman of God. You know, I remember sitting down with her, uh, went over to her place, family members were there over the course of this past month, a handful of times. And uh, I remember one time sitting down and just talking with her and, and just kind of hearing a little bit about her, her, her life and just what, she, what she's feeling in these moments. And she shared with me, it's so odd she said, it's so odd when people come in and they talk about things and every once in a while somebody will slip something in that they don't realize they make, they make a comment about, hey, well, in the summer we will. Or, hey, in the fall I'm going to go visit. And then she'll realize, oh, I'm, I'm not going to be there for that. And so as I was sitting there talking with her and I share with her, and she had known that my wife and I are, are going to be moving to Utah at the end of the summer. Uh, to go plant a church. And as we talked with her about that, I was kind of sharing a little bit about it. And she said, wow, it sounds like it's going to be crazy. Uh, it's going to be really intense, isn't it? I said, yeah. She said, uh, when are you going? And I said, I'm going in September. And man, I'm going to need a lot of prayer. And she just looked and she just smiled. And I realized the reason she couldn't say anything is because the next Christianese remark should be, I will be praying for you but she wouldn't be able to. Because on Friday, she went home to see the Lord, and she's at home now. And she can't pray for us in September. She can do far better. Because now she has the ear of her Savior as she looks at him in the face. I love Michelle. I love her so much. And I love her family. And what I love is the focus that I saw in her. Imagine if we could all have a focus like that everywhere we went, that as a church, that people would see us and say, there's something about these people that are so weird. They seem like they don't care about all those other periphery things. They're always only and unequivocally about Jesus. They don't care about their money. They don't care about their possessions. They don't care about their plans, their ambitions, their relationships. They only care about Jesus. And everything in their life is driven by it. They are so undistracted. Imagine if we could be that. 
imagine if we were to live life like that. I'm asking you to stick it out with me. We've got four more weekends. We're going to be systematically walking through the parts of our life that we don't oftentimes know are are distractions for us. We're not going to spend time as a self-help seminar trying you to declutter your life. I don't care about your life being cluttered. I'm sorry, I don't. I do care about the temple, your heart, being undistracted so that you can worship the God who so deserves it. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much that you love us enough that you sent your son on this earth to die for us. And not only that, but he taught us so much about life. God, that he even would act out in that moment where he'd flip tables and so many people foolishly and arrogantly get angry at Jesus for acting out in a situation that seems like he's being hateful, but he is being so loving that, God, he showed how much he cares about a wholly devoted life. Lord, help us have our lives wholly, completely, undistractedly devoted to you. Let us be marked as it is a church. Let people look to us and say there's something different, there's something weird about those people because nothing gets in their way. They see where they're going, they've cleared everything out, and they're unafraid and they're unashamed. God, let people see that. Let us honor and glorify you. Father, forgive us for being distracted. God, help us as we walk on this journey. Lord, I pray that through the course of this month that you'll continue to expose and to open up the distractions in our life, to show them to us so that we're prepared to deal with them. Because God, we know you and you alone are powerful enough to deal with them. We're going to need your help. Show us, Lord. Let us follow you because you alone are worthy of the glory and the worship, completely undistracted and fully devoted from our lives. We pray these things in Jesus' name.